The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome to this Friday edition of Squawbox. You've got Karen Cho, you've got Jeff Cutmore, you've got myself, Steve Sedgwick, and you've also got some headlines. Major U.S. indices closing just about in the green after a volatile session with early futures pointing to a higher open for Friday session, but stocks staying on track to log a fourth week of losses. Virus cases across the United States topping 7 million amid a spike in infections in the Midwest and cases in North and South Dakota rising over 160% on the month. The UK Chancellor of the Exchequer bets on a German-inspired wage subsidy plan, confirming the furlough scheme will expire next month and be replaced by his £10 billion programme. I can't save every job and I can't protect every single business. Expectation and hope is that this new scheme will be able to benefit a large numbers of people and help protect their jobs through the difficult winter months. A judge rules the US government must file legal papers defending its decision to ban TikTok or delay its plan to block app downloads by Sunday as President Trump says safety is his key concern. They're working to see if they can make a deal and if they make a deal they'll have to bring it to me and I'll either approve, approve it or not. Uh, to me safety is the predominant factor. And the CEO of Zanoffi tells CNBC the drug maker is ready to make over a billion doses of its COVID-19 vaccine with partner GSK that will be available early next year. We're the only big uh, vaccine maker making a vaccine on a platform that we've used year in, year out and that we've already approved vaccines on. We're doing it in partnership with GSK, another global, you know, absolute top quality company. The number of coronavirus cases in the United States has surpassed 7 million, following an uptick in infections in several states this month. The country also has the world's highest fatality rate, reporting more than 203,000 deaths from the virus so far. And yet there are some uh, positive trends in the employment data, Karen. Let's take a quick look at the weekly jobless claims number, 870,000. Uh, that on a seasonally adjusted basis last week, which was above forecasts, but it marked the fourth straight week that filings were below 1 million, whilst almost half of the 22 million jobs lost during the height of the pandemic have been recovered. The home sales data was remarkable. We saw new home sales rise to a near 14-year high in August, uh, increasing 4.8%. Over 1 million homes were sold during the month, topping estimates, while July's reading was revised upwards. So, Steve, it does seem as though people are taking advantage of these incredibly low mortgage rates to get themselves on the housing ladder. And of course, you've got that double whammy where tight supply means that prices are also very firm at the moment. Remarkable, given what Karen said about the US and the pandemic and the fact that uh, obviously we still have, what, 8% plus unemployment. 
I, I keep reading that people are concerned about what happens next with bank lending and the credit markets and the freezing up of that. But at the moment, very little sign of that at the moment. Uh, I would defer differ slightly from you about those uh, jobless figures. I know the housing numbers are unarguably strong, but uh, I don't think stagnating at just below a million uh, extra jobless claims, 870,000, I, I think they're appallingly bad numbers, actually, I've got to say. But uh, I know that uh, others may disagree. Let's have a look at the um, market data as well. This is what the US markets ended up doing. Yeah, very um, stately, easy, calm session. Uh, no, not really. Uh, let's have a look at the Dow actual session. Those were the closes. But again, extreme volatility, big, big rally up to uh, what are we talking? Um, well, actually, that's the last uh, five days, isn't it? I don't think that's the Dow session, is it? I'm pretty sure that's the five, last five days, isn't it? Oh, that's the session, is it? Okay, so why are the numbers at the bottom look very strange? That's the time they're telling me. Okay, so we've started the session at, uh, anyway, 15, 16, 17, 8. I have no idea what the producer's telling me, but apparently uh, that, that's the US session in European time. Nice. There you go. That's the US session in European time rather than actually the date. Very strange way of looking at it. But anyway, as you can see, uh, we rallied to mid-session and then came off a little bit later on, but we were still positive on the session. Right, um, Karen, you've been looking a lot at the quarter-to-date move, so I, what we can do is look at the month-to-date versus the quarter-to-date because they actually tell very different stories, as you were pointing out yesterday uh, on the show as well. So if I say to you a whole host of numbers now, like the Dow, for instance, month-to-date is down 5.7%, but on the quarter-to-date is up 3.9% as well. So big disparity there, huge amount of the gains of the month and the quarter just wiped out in the last few weeks or so. Uh, S&P, similar story, down 7.3% month to date. The quarter still up 4.7% as well. I'll, I'll draw your attention to the Russell 2K as well because these are uh, atrocious numbers on the month to date. 7.05% down, uh, which has taken the quarter to just over the flat line. But interestingly, if we keep moving through various of the stats, the dollar uh, has actually had a very good month which is quite surprising given how gloomy it's been for a lot of this crisis. Uh, up 2.4% month-to-date, uh, but on the quarter, still down over 3%. Yeah. And a dovish Fed, perhaps if they'd done even more again, which the market was hoping for, more extraordinary <laughs> action. I shouldn't quite sure what they're reaching for in the toolkit, but if there had been something, maybe the dollar would have had a, a slightly different direction from, from the moves higher. Yeah, the European markets are down 1.3% for the Eurostock 600 on a quarterly basis. Um, that's pretty much because the month today has taken it down from small positive, Jeffs, to small negatives. But the transports, they, they have a almost legendary status of kind of foretelling what's going on in the underlying economy. What are they telling us? Yeah, I think it's fascinating to pick up that point you were making about the contrast between the quarter and the month. Um, we've made, uh, you know, so much running about the technology story because uh, we know that that's been a, a subsector of the market that's done a lot of the noise. It's done a lot of the movement, but actually it's been outperformed by the old fashioned transport. So the month to date number negative 0.61%, but over the uh, quarter, 20 0.2%. And when you drill within that, you know, boring old delivery companies like FedEx actually up 74% on the quarter to date, UPS up 44% quarter to date. And I guess, you know, it, it does make some sense. I mean, just circling back to that uh, jobs number, I think the, the fascinating point is 
that we are getting this spotty data on both sides. Some looks weak, some of it looks weak, some of it looks very strong. But what it does seem to be pointing to is the flexibility of the US economy to come back reasonably quickly. The same kind of flexibility, unfortunately, we don't see in some European markets. But if you think about the transports as the veins and the arteries of an economy, the fact that we are seeing trucks and vans and trains hauling goods again, and it's being shown up in the transports data and the way people are reacting to the transports, that ought to be encouraging because, if anything, it it tells you that while the digital side of the economy is clearly incredibly important, as are all those working-from-home trends, the transports are robustly telling us that there is still something going on under the surface in the U.S. economy, which I guess should be encouraging at this point, Karen. Jeff, we saw money rotate out of tech into the areas that you're talking about as investors played broader themes on this economic recovery, not just tech in the month of September. And that's quite in contrast to what we've seen since the recovery back in March. I mean, even you can even witness it on a quarterly basis. You know, the Nasdaq is still up on the quarter, six plus percent higher. But on the monthly basis, the trade for September down more than nine percent. So it has been an abysmal month. And uh, a couple of the major stocks, you can see how they trade on the markets. It has been a stunning year still. And I would point out uh, some of the big ones. I mean, Apple clearly in focus for this refresh cycle, all the demand for connected devices at home, home from phones to, to laptops. That's been very positive for Apple. Yet the stock did have a bit of a rough month. I think investors were looking at what comes next in future years. Will this demand be sustained? And finally, you have had one analyst at least come out saying that he's concerned about that demand story down the track. So actually moving the rating on the stock from a buy to neutral. So very active analysts in the tech stocks at this point. I would say the same thing about Amazon, but on the opposite side, you had one analyst come out who then turned uh, much more upbeat on the stock, thinking that even though he'd been a little bit pessimistic about its fortunes and where the stock was trading, he thinks it's been particularly nimble, just really doubling down on some of the verticals where they've seen some success. So he marked Amazon stock higher on that basis. And just down to Facebook, I mean, clearly, as we talk about how uncertain this recovery is going to be, advertising is an element that gets hit. And I think the market was a little bit concerned about that stock. That said, the pullback we've had, 12-month PE, 27.9, one is where it's trading at. So I think a lot of the investor community is now saying we've had a setback. Do we get an entry point in some of these names at this point, which are trading higher for the year, but are certainly well and truly off where they finished up the month of August? I I think we have to look at why they're being bought or why they're being sold. But we'll say why they're being bought for the main part because they are up staggeringly for the year. So let me break it down into three. I know there's a lot more reasons for this. Is it because A, the often cited route, is there a growth stock? B, is because or because people like their valuation at the moment? Or C, it's a momentum trade? And I think very often you'll get this queue of people coming on our channel who say, oh, it's because of A. It's because of the value, because we think that they are a growth stock. We don't particularly like the, the valuation at the moment, but we know it can grow into it. But actually, what they really mean is it's a momentum stock, isn't it? Well, I think all different names tick different boxes at different points. I mean, Apple, over the years, it was uh, discussed as being fairly undervalued for what they deliver. I don't think we can say the same thing anymore. I was just pointing out on Facebook. I mean, when have we been discussing that looks like it's decent value? It's come back to the point where analysts are saying, well, maybe there is some value there. I take your point of momentum because we certainly saw momentum in all of these names yeah. from about March through till, till August. So the momentum, has been momentum. Are absolutely having a horrendous time of it at the moment, according to some of the latest data. Jeff? 
Yeah, no, I just wanted to make a couple of points and, and pick up on what, what you guys are saying, because I think uh, it, it's a terrific conversation here. I mean, what I thought was amazing was just the round turn that we had in the Dow yesterday. And I'm not surprised that some of these uh, people who actually trade for a living are having a challenge. Um, the session low on the Dow was off 226 points. But at one point, we were up 300 points. And then we closed the day up 52 points. So what a huge roller coaster ride we saw in the uh, indices themselves. But I think that there is something more interesting going on here around the second wave. And it'll be, uh, you know, interesting to see whether that comes to Europe as well. But it clearly seems to be happening in the United States. And it's this idea that the second wave is the same as the first wave, but it's different. And visibility is returning to some corporates. And the fact that you've got this group of companies now in the United States that are planning to begin returning capital uh, to investors, and they are returning guidance, the likes of Darden, Lululemon, uh, Dollar Tree, and so forth, coming out this month and saying, yep, we know that this is going to be bad still for a while, but we think we now understand how we fit into this story of coronavirus going forward. And we think we know how to manage the situation. And I think that's that's causing investors just to reflect a little bit on whether you just do buy growth momentum at this point or whether you now circle back and have a look at the the whole idea of the K economy, i.e. those companies that come through and can be winners and those ones that are still struggling at this point. So same but different, I think, is my mantra for the morning. Good views to discuss as we also pick up on some of the overnight coverage as to whether there is going to be a stimulus bill because if we think about all the trends we've witnessed since the start of this year, concerns around coronavirus, the impact on the economy, a lot of that has been pushed to one side with the market outperforming because of the first round of stimulus. So it begs the question, what does the second round do for the markets with this uncertainty that we're witnessing? And the latest is that congressional Democrats and White House officials say they're ready to restart talks over a new coronavirus relief package. Top Democrats are working on a new $2.4 trillion spending plan. As House Speaker Nancy Pelosi says, she hopes to secure a deal with Republicans. Meanwhile, Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin says he is ready to continue those discussions, but did not provide a specific timetable for the negotiations. Uh, let's come to this side of the Atlantic. Uh, you, the UK reported over 6,600 6, in total, actually, new coronavirus cases on Thursday. As the rate of infections continues to rise, the Health Secretary Matt Hancock said the increased uh, number of cases reflected a high level of testing compared with the first wave adding he estimates fewer than 10,000 people per day are catching the virus. That's far below the 100,000 daily infections during the height of the pandemic in the UK. Uh, Chancellor of the Exchequer, Rishi Sunak, has unveiled a series of new job protection measures as a second wave of COVID infections threatens to undo the country's post-lockdown recovery. The package will see the government subsidise wages for workers whose hours have been reduced, although its contribution will drop from 80% to just over 20%. Unlike the initial furlough scheme, Sunak said the new measures are designed to, quote, support only viable jobs. Speaking to reporters, Sunak explained the government can no longer provide a bank blanket level of support for all workers. It's not for me to sit here and make pronouncements on every individual job. What I want to be able to do is provide 
as much support as possible, given the constraints that we operate in. We, we obviously can't sustain the same level uh, of things that we were doing at the beginning of this crisis, but nor would it right to do to be to do so either because the situation has evolved this is now something as i said earlier we know is going to be a fact of our lives for a while to come and that means the economy is going to change and adapt i i can't promise that everyone can go back to the job that they used to have i will tell you the viewer very briefly that there is a dispute going on in the uk cabinet all the time on the importance of keeping the economy going uh, against the uh, the need to combat covid it's an eternal dispute all over the world but there have been concerns that the prime minister is up in arms uh, versus some of those economy hawks, so to speak. Uh, but the prime minister said he did back the chancellor's latest job support measures, but stressed the upcoming months uh, will still be testing times. The chancellor is being totally realistic with people about the prospects of the, of the economy. Things will be, will be tough. What we're saying to people who, who do the right thing, as you, as you put it, Sam, who, who self-isolate uh, when they are contacted by NHS test and trace, they will get support. Uh, as you know, there's, a, there's 500 pounds uh, to support them. But there's also uh, a 10,000 pound fine, potentially, if you, if you don't comply. And that's, it's absolutely vital that we all work together now to get the R down, uh, get the virus back under control, and then uh, and simultaneously allow education and the economy to continue. That is the best thing for jobs, uh, for growth in this country. Uh, Boris Johnson, the UK Prime Minister there. Well, we'll take a quick break. When we come back... President Trump pays his respects to Ruth Bader Ginsburg, but then causes some controversy with his remarks about a peaceful transfer of power after the elections. We'll explain in just a moment. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. Welcome back. Officials in Louisville have extended a nighttime curfew through the weekend after hundreds joined fresh protests in Kentucky. The demonstrations follow a grand jury decision to clear three police officers of charges relating to the death of the black medical worker Breonna Taylor. The lack of indictments has sparked protests across the country. Only one of the officers was charged with endangering her neighbours after firing into their apartment during the incident. Well, President Trump paid his last respects to Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, at the uh, Supreme Court where the judge is lying in repose. This as the president faces criticism now over his refusal to commit to a peaceful transfer of power. NBC's Peter Alexander has the report. If President Trump visited the Supreme Court out of respect for the late Ruth Bader Ginsburg, he received little of it in return. A chorus of boos from the crowd below, some chanting respect her wish and vote him out. 
With the election just 40 days away, President Trump trailing Joe Biden in most polls is bulldozing one of the fundamental principles of American democracy, refusing to commit to the peaceful transfer of power. Will you commit to making sure that there is a peaceful transfer of power after the election? Well, we're going to have to see what happens. You know that I've been complaining very strongly about the ballots, and the ballots are a disaster. The president amplifying his crusade to cast doubt on the election's integrity, ramping up his claims that an expected surge in mail-in voting will lead to widespread fraud, though there's no evidence that's true. Tonight, with the White House insisting the president would accept the results of a free and fair election, President Trump suggested the vote may be tainted. Are the election results only legitimate if you win? So uh, we have to be very careful with the ballots. The ballots, that's a whole big scam. Democrats comparing the president to a dictator. You are not in Russia, Mr. President. And by the way, you are not in Saudi Arabia. You are in the United States of America. It is a democracy. A small group of Republicans also disapproving, but few, if any, condemning President Trump by name. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell tweeting, there will be an orderly transition just as there has been every four years since 1792. Mitt Romney calling any suggestion otherwise both unthinkable and unacceptable. There have been contentious elections before, but the loser has always accepted defeat. For the sake of our unity as a people and the strength of our democracy, I offer my concession. President Trump's now pushing to confirm a ninth Supreme Court justice before the election. Anticipating the court with a new solidly conservative majority could be asked to weigh in if the results are contested. His ally, Lindsey Graham. But the courts will hear all of our complaints. The courts will decide and we will accept the court's decision, Republican and Democrat. I promise you as a Republican, if the Supreme Court rules in favor of Joe Biden, I will accept that result. Biden firing back at the president overnight. What country are we in? Look, I... He says the most irrational things. Joe Biden there just showing how difficult it is to get your message off when you're wearing a very heavy mask. Uh, Mark Shanahan is head of Department of Politics and International Relations at Reading University. Mark, um, I was doing a little bit of looking up on you and, and, and I found this fast, fascinating short piece you did comparing Ike, uh, Eisenhower, of course, the US president from 53 to 61, uh, and comparing Trump. And that's exactly what I wanted to ask you, so I'm really glad you've done that as well. They're both outsiders as well. I mean, just they're both Republicans, ostensibly, as well. Um, how do you, what do you think when you first think about comparing Eisenhower to Trump? I'm just fascinated. Um, so Eisenhower came into the presidency from a career in the army, uh, but he was the ultimate insider. He had worked with Stalin, with Roosevelt, with uh, Churchill all the way through the war. He'd had positions in Washington where he'd worked for the uh, Secretary of State to the Army. So he knew how Washington operated from the inside. He also had a degree of humility. Um, he was quite uh, strong in the way that he operated, but he didn't always believe that he knew how everything should be done. And he had plenty of helping hands around him to make it happen. Uh, he was rather like Trump in some ways, in that he thought ultimately he was the best man for the job, in his case in the 50s, for waging peace. Trump 
the disruptor coming from the outside thought that he could drain the swamp and do all of those things and deliver a different kind of politics for America. The biggest difference, Eisenhower was working for the country. Trump, as we've seen for the last four years, is primarily working for brands Trump and sees the world through the lens of what effect it has on him personally. Mark? A lot of okay, and that's fascinating. I could talk to you all day about that, but I think I've got to move on from the fifties to the two thousand and twenty election as well. So, Mr. Trump, I mean, you said Trump works for himself as well. There are a lot of U.S. businessmen and a large amount of Americans still over forty percent who actually believe he's doing the right thing in many ways as well. You're saying that they're misguided, and actually, Mr. Trump is working for himself rather than actually trying to create wealth for Americans, and hence, I presume, get a trickle down from thereafter. Trump is all about power. Uh, he will do what he sees will bring him the power for the longest period. Now, actually, he's delivered a very, very ordinary Republican presidency. He's cut taxes, he's cut regulation, all of these things that play very, very well with business. Uh, he's worked to his base primarily by getting conservative justices on the benches uh, at all levels of federal court up to the Supreme Court. So before the pandemic, he probably probably was on track for re-election because he was doing what would be expected of a Republican president. Now, he does it in a fairly Wild West way through his own style, but pandemic aside, he probably was on for delivering a small majority in the Electoral College this time round. As soon as COVID-19 hit, all bets were off. Mark, I just want to debate the, the threat of uh, not having a smooth handover of power. The market was concerned earlier in the week, and you certainly saw that shiver up and down everyone's spine. If there is going to be some sort of a, a fight in the courts over who takes office, that just creates enormous uncertainty. And top Republicans, though, pushing back against this notion. So I wonder whether this is Trump angling for something before that we get to that point, which is effectively he wants lower turnout, uh, fewer ballots mailed in at this point because it would help him get re-elected. Is that how we perceive it, not actually a genuine threat that there would be a fight over the smooth transfer of power? I think Trump thrives on chaos and anything he can do in uh, the next 40 days to disrupt the smooth running of this election process to challenge the norms and challenge the expectations play in his favour. Republicans will come out and vote. His base comes out and votes. Biden wins if he can get a high electoral turnout and those people in the swing states, uh, the purple voters who are not committed either to the Republicans or the Democrats come out and vote. Now, Trump sees only two answers to this election. Either he wins or that the election is stolen from him. That is the Trump narrative. So actually what Biden needs is a fairly big win that Trump has nowhere to go that he cannot uh, push back on and challenge its legi legitimacy. And legitimacy is the big message that he will be getting out and saying that mail-in votes uh, are are not good for the system, despite the fact he's registered for one himself, uh, is a way of sowing doubt. And that is what he is looking to do. If he then loses, he's got an excuse. He can blame everybody else and he can say the election was stolen from him.
Uh, Mark, uh, let me just ask you about um, the optics uh, around the Supreme Court nomination. Obviously, the pictures didn't look too good for Trump with the protests outside the Supreme Court while he was paying his respects. But I'm not sure it's going to change anybody's mind, is it, when it comes to where they put their mark on the ballot paper? Not really. I mean, that was really fascinating yesterday for him to turn up at the Supreme Court and be heavily and roundly booed. He Normally, every time he walks out into the world, it's for some kind of mega MAGA rally. He's surrounded by a donut of adoring fans. He heard that protest yesterday. Uh, all across America, people will have heard that. But w- we have a hugely polarised system in America now, and people's views are very entrenched. There is a small segment in the middle that both candidates are playing for. Trump is looking at a legacy and the legacy he may leave behind, whether he wins or loses in November, is a much more conservative court that will be conservative for a generation. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.